Hello and welcome to Bardcast, the Shakespeare podcast. I'm Carson. And I'm Jeff. And today we're talking about Shakespeare's histories. That is to say, the history plays and not Shakespeare's personal history. That's right. And we've also got some various news items at the end. So here we go. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeff. Yes. I've got a little riddle for you. Okay. What is similar about the following plays? The Tragedy of Julius Caesar, The Tragedy of King Lear, The Tragedy of Macbeth, the Tragedy of Antony and Cleopatra, and The Tragedy of Coriolanus. I'm going to say they're all tragedies. That's correct. But why are they tragedies? Because bad stuff happens and the hero dies in the end. Okay. Let me get more specific about what's similar about these. Okay. Aren't they all historical events? Are they? Yes. Is King Lear? Yes. Semi-historical. And Macbeth is semi-historical, I knew, too. Macbeth is pretty real. So all of these things are things that Shakespeare would have reasonably thought were real events. Okay. Well, I know Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra and such. And Coriolanus are all well-documented. I don't know who that is. We'll get to that in the Coriolanus episode, of course. Of course. So why aren't these history plays is kind of the central question of the definition of a history play as opposed to a tragedy. Because, of course, all of those that I listed are historical events that are tragedies. Is it because they don't take place in England? That seems to be part of it, except, of course, Macbeth happens in Scotland. That's not part of England. Sort of England. And King Lear does happen in England. You have just made so many Scottish people angry. King Lear does happen in England. Does it? Yes, it's an English king. It doesn't really matter to the course of the play. Then I guess I don't know, because uh, none of them are... I have no idea why. They don't have numbers at the end of their name. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't think that there is a real rule that you can say, but I I have sort of uh, thought about it in that Shakespeare would have seen the histories that we'll list in a moment as sort of modern history, sort of like we would see our presidents as modern history. Okay. Where if someone were to make a play about, say, Jamestown where we don't have a lot of documentation about it. Or like the Disney movie Pocahontas. Right, that sort of thing, where it's more relying on a general idea of what happened, and then we fill in a lot of details because we've got a lot less detail about it. We might call that one of Shakespeare's tragedies instead of one of Shakespeare's histories because it's so much further back where our presidents... We had a play about Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) Even our earliest presidents are recent enough that we would probably consider them kind of Mm -hmm. modern history. So I think that's kind of the distinction. I don't know if that's what they were thinking at the time, but all of these kings... These are all plays about kings, the histories. Mm -hmm. All of these kings were people that would have directly influenced Shakespeare's time in their legacy. So um, let's look at the histories. All right. Uh, Shakespeare's first plays, people think, are the King Henry VI trilogy. Yep. People think that these were written by another person and Shakespeare. We don't know who exactly. They're fairly amateurish comparatively. Exactly. It's a rough trilogy with a lot of unusual stuff in it. It's got Joan of Arc in it. And she summons demons, if you have any idea about Shakespeare's political theories towards France. There's a little detail. So that's a trilogy right there. That was his first real historical work, and possibly his first set of plays. So then we've got another trilogy, which is actually attached to King Henry VI which is King Henry IV, Part One and Two, and King Henry V. Don't you? I thought Richard II was part of that set, too. Okay, true enough. Let, let's just go into the larger continuity. So okay. most of Shakespeare's histories are one long list, if you put them in chronological order. It starts at Richard II. Yep. Then it's Henry IV. Part One and Two. Exactly. Henry V. Henry VI, Part One, Two, and Three. And then Richard III. Exactly. So I believe that is an eight-play series. 
but it's generally considered to be two four-play series. Err, uh, yeah, you could do it that way. Um, it's actually been put on as a series. Obviously, they've cut out a lot of it for performances, mm-hmm. typically. But people have done the entire thing in a row in terms of narrative it as a performance. a long play. Yeah, if you just did them all fully back-to-back, it would be insane. But it would be kind of neat to see that continuity because a lot of the plays do end with the king dying and the next person taking the place, especially the King Henry the Fourth. It is about Henry the Fifth Becoming Henry the Fifth. Exactly. There is some real continuity in the fourth part, one and two, and then the fifth. And obviously, the Henry the Sixth stuff is just one yeah. series. That all fits together, too. And then Richard the Third is the guy who came in after Henry the Sixth. That's right. And that's the War of the Roses. That's the end of the Lancaster's War of the Roses. Lancaster's versus York's. Exactly. And so, Richard the Third is the last person of his house before the coming of the house that Elizabeth I, Shakespeare's queen, was the member of. And then with that, it goes Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward, Mary, Elizabeth. So just that small group of names is the only separation between Shakespeare himself and Richard III. So it's really pretty modern history. Mm-hmm. So you've got this series. I mean, obviously, they're not in order, and they're not designed to be a series, but you've got this chronological block, and then you've got two standout plays, uh, King John. Which is about uh, King John and the Magna Carta and stuff. It's not even about the Magna Carta. It's really? it's a really unusual play because to us, we would think, oh, King John, it's about the Magna Carta and it's about Robin Hood, right? Oh, yeah, Robin Hood was that time, too. <laughs> exactly, it? exactly. That, those are the two things that we know about King John, but Robin Hood doesn't even appear at all in the play. Probably because he might not have been a real historian. <laughs> That's a good point. But it's really about stuff that we have no knowledge about today, and it's not a popular play, so we don't even know about the stuff in King John from kind of the cultural... Um, inheritance of Shakespeare's plays. So it's almost entirely forgotten as a play. And then the other one is The Life of King Henry VIII. Who was Queen Elizabeth's dad. Right, so it's really modern history. And really like, look how great this guy was. Because Shakespeare don't like to get executed. <laughs> exactly. It's it's very positive for Henry VIII, but oddly, or uh, not oddly at all, it really climaxes in... The birth of Elizabeth I. That's true. Everyone is very excited in that play about the birth of Elizabeth I, even though Henry VIII himself is very disappointed in the birth of yet another daughter. Yeah. Instead of a son, which is obviously what he wanted for another Well, he got a son on the third go-around. It's an interesting little diversion, King Henry VIII, because it's possibly Shakespeare's last play. We think that it came out around 1616 or 1613, that area. I would have thought he'd written it while Elizabeth was alive. That's the really odd thing about it. We think that it's written then because it's apparently written with another person and it would have been around the time Shakespeare was retiring. And um, it's got kind of a mature style. And there's a record of it being performed because when King Henry VIII was performed, that's when they burned down the globe, when they fired a cannon. That bad? (laughs) the crowd burns it down no they just fired a mock cannon and the sparks apparently started the place on fire so that's kind of an overview of the histories let's talk about shakespeare's approach to history basically it's he'll keep it as historically as he can from his sources unless it's a better story if he doesn't Exactly. When you say Shakespeare's source, it's important to say that Shakespeare wasn't a historian. He didn't have interest in research. 
No, he just wanted a good story, and history occasionally has those. Mm -hmm. History has a lot of good stories, and I think they gave him a nice framework to hang his work on. Shakespeare, as we've mentioned many times, doesn't really write original plays. Instead, uh, he uses these already existing events to kind of do what he wants with them, instead of uh, inventing a whole story, whole cloth. When it comes to the historical research, he basically takes one book, mostly uh, in terms of the Roman stuff, he takes a translation of Plutarch, and for the uh, modern stuff, he takes the Hollinshead popular history of the time, and basically just takes the events and writes them down as they were written down in the book. He doesn't bother to try to research or figure out if things are right or wrong or compare it to another source. Because that doesn't really matter. It's a play. Right. So if you're doing Shakespeare as history... Don't do Shakespeare's history, because it's just not accurate. He didn't concern himself with accuracy any more than was strictly necessary. So he, he takes both the errors of the original work, which are not perfect, either of them, and he also adds his own errors when, as you say, it's more convenient. So. Occasionally changing names, ages, stuff like that. Right, but especially he changes the timing of things uh, Mm -hmm. for the sake of drama. So in Julius Caesar, he turns two battles into one battle. In Coriolanus, he takes a speech that happened at one time and brought it into the play because it made a good speech. Mm -hmm. In Richard II, the title King Richard II, leaves to go invade Ireland. When in Ireland, hears that there's something bad going on back in England, sails back to England, and comes back to the place where bad stuff is happening all in about it's you can't tell exactly in about a day (laughs) or at least very brief amount of time that there is not enough time for him to have gotten to ireland in the first place but what shakespeare relies on is the fact that we're not writing down on a calendar right right what's going on yeah so we just see that these things have happened and we don't question the fact that if you do the math things don't work out correctly That's a long tradition in theater, film, all sorts of things. People even find that in modern film, you can have big changes happen between camera cuts, and people don't even notice that, even in one scene. So these these continuity errors between acts of a play is just minor in comparison. And of course, like we mentioned for... Henry VIII, Shakespeare was very much willing to sacrifice his historical integrity. He had that? (laughs) I guess he didn't have it in the first place. For the sake of political and religious. Yeah. He's always going to want to keep the current guy in charge happy. Right. Like in Macbeth, when he says, basically, that someday a king will come that is the greatest (laughs) king of all time, and his name will be James I. Hey, James I, this is about you. Doesn't go quite that far, but basically does. There's that entire scene where the ghost visits him and shows him a succession of kings leading down to the current king. Yeah, really directly. And, of course, like in Henry VIII, celebrating Elizabeth's birth. He lived in a state where, if you wanted to be able to publish something, the state had to approve it beforehand. Yeah. So you had to service the state as a function of what you were doing. You couldn't be a playwright that wrote things against the state. It was impossible. They wouldn't, That'd be treason. And they literally just wouldn't let you. They mm. wouldn't sign the document that says that you have a right to put on a play. Mm. And they'd arrest you. <laughs> exactly. There isn't a whole lot to say about the histories as a set, unless we just went through the plots, which I don't think we're going to bother no, to we'll, do. No, we'll do that when we do the, those plays. We've already done... A good chunk of them, I think. Yeah, we have. The um, whole uh, Richard II through Henry V, right? Yeah, we did Richard II, the fourth part one and two, and the fifth. And, oh man, I'm not looking forward to Henry VI. Deal with it. You'll eat your Henry VI and you'll like it. 
So let's talk about Richard III. Yep. So uh, last time, last time we mentioned that uh, they might have found Richard III's body in a parking lot in England. And it turns out you were right. Yep. It was almost certainly based on DNA testing, Richard III. That's fantastic. Like that's mm-hmm. really we're living in like modern historical discoveries. Yes. It's really exciting. They've looked at the body and they're like, okay. So, this is how he died. Yeah, but we actually have the injuries, like, to his skeleton and stuff, yep. that we can actually tell how he died at the time, mm-hmm. how his body was mutilated. Yep. We also know that he had scoliosis. Right. Probably Richard III's most famous attribute is being a hunchback. And this isn't quite the same thing, but it's a spinal deformation that Shakespeare amplified a great deal to make him more villainous. Exactly, exactly. Um, I believe the current thought is that he would have been kind of to the side, like one of his shoulders would have been higher than the other, mm-hmm. noticeably, but certainly not Shakespeare's portrayal of a man whom people cry when they look at him and dogs bark at him on the street, that with one leg shorter than the other and a monstrous hunched back. That's largely Shakespeare, again, relying on a single source. Making the loser look bad. Exactly. Because the winner is his boss. <laughs> <laughs> when Richard Third died and the other house took over England. They wrote a lot of stuff to make Richard III look bad. Yeah, and propaganda. So, exactly. So they amplified his physical deformities and his bad reign. I think people and nowadays... And murdering his nephews. Possibly. Yep. I think people nowadays think that Richard III is largely an able administrator who just happened to lose the war for control of England. There is kind of this thing that news articles do where they say, Richard III's body found sheds new light on the monster of Shakespeare or something like that. Yeah, the only light it really sheds is that we know for sure he actually did have scoliosis and that he actually did die in battle. Right, and kind of the physical details of how he died, although that's hardly important in terms Mm -hmm. of the historical record. We basically knew that Shakespeare was wrong for as long as we've done historical research. Like, a hundred years ago, you could probably go to a historian and say, was Richard III like Shakespeare's Richard III? And they'd say no. So this entire idea that it uh, sheds any new light on Richard III is just people trying to explain why it's interesting. They're trying to say, hey, look at us, there's an interesting story. When really, the interesting thing is that we found one of the kings of England under a parking lot. The missing one. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, I think. We can add him to the collection. From here on out, we're not really going to be talking about Shakespeare. So if you want to zone out or Or just go to another podcast feel free but it is something important to podcasting in general so i do hope you'll listen there's a little thing in congress right now called the shield act it's to stop something called patent trolls and it's a little complicated and we'll link to some stuff on the website bardcast.blogspot.com which will explain it in more detail but essentially a patent troll patents a very vague subject so they'll patent something like in this case taking a sequence of digital recordings and putting them on the internet and a bunch of other things that relates to that. And so they've got this patent that's very vague and very general. And then they'll find people that use it, in this case podcasters, and say, either give us a fraction of your income or we will sue you for patent infringement. And the real problem is that even if their patent is invalid, it costs a fortune to defend yourself in this sort of lawsuit. People estimate that it costs at least a million dollars to defend yourself in this sort of thing, even if you have a valid case. And when you win, you get nothing. There is no recompense for this. 
the point is, podcasting is not a rich industry. It's largely done by, if not people like us who are wholly amateurs, then people who have a modest income at best from podcasting. So there's no way that podcasting could survive if this got serious, if they just went around suing everyone. We just go underground. (laughs) And the S.H.I.E.L.D. Act would reform this sort of patent system, the most important effect would be that when I sue you for infringing on my patent, and then you successfully defend yourself, I have to pay your fees. So you pay a million dollars, and I have to pay you that million dollars. Otherwise, the company can go around and just pay a thousand dollars to cost you a million dollars. Right. It's like blackmail, basically. Exactly. We're very much in favor of this bill, and when I first heard this, I didn't think about this podcast at all. I thought about all the podcasts I listen to. Yeah, I don't listen to those podcasts. Because they're almost certainly not going to threaten us. We're None of them compare to us. <laughs> we're basically few hundred people listen to this, as opposed to the thousands and thousands of people that listen to more popular podcasts. But, of course, if they did sue us, we would just fold like that. Well, you might. What would they sue us for? For violating this, let me be honest, shenanigans patent. Mm-hmm. This patent basically covers any distribution of sound on the internet, yeah. according to them. What can they do, though? They could say, you're infringing on our patent. And we could ignore them. And then they could take our money from us. What money? <laughs> That's a good point. We don't have any money to be taken. But we would go, you know, we would be in debt or whatever. There is a website that I will link to where basically you can enter in what zip code you're in and they'll tell you what representative and you'll just type in the information necessary and they'll send an email to your senators and representative. I'm also going to write a physical letter because they care more about physical letters, although they do care about emails. If you hear um, what goes on in Congress, people really do care about emails about this sort of thing. They care about what their constituents go out of their way to do. I'm going to write a letter to Joe Biden, probably, because he's a funny guy. Yeah, he he probably cares a lot about this issue. <laughs> well, I mean, the bill does exist, so it's yeah. not like this is some marginal, non-existent issue. And, of course, the patent trolls threaten far more than just podcasting. It threatens all sorts of industries. Oh, yeah. Google and Apple and major tech companies like that have hundreds of millions of dollars of patents that they buy simply to defend themselves. So they can say, oh, I already own a patent that covers this. Not to produce anything at all. It's a massively wasteful system. Yep. As one last little thing, a very kind listener has offered to contribute kind of fancy recordings of Shakespearean dialogue. And we would be able to use that as kind of, instead of us quoting uh, Shakespeare very awkwardly, he would be able to insert those into the recording. Well, we would insert them into the recording after he had recorded them. We're just going to take a listen to one of those, and then we're going to see how we like it, and we're going to see how you guys like it, too, out there. Tranya, <laughs> since for the great desire I had to see fair Padua, nursery of arts, I am arrived for fruitful Lombardy. Oh, the pleasant garden of great Italy. And, by my father's love and leave, am armed with his goodwill and thy good company. Oh, my trusty servant, well approved in all. Here, let us breathe and happily institute a course of learning and ingenious studies. Pisa, renowned for grave citizens, gave me my being and my father first, a merchant of great traffic through the world, Vincentio. Come of the Bentivoli, Vincentio's son brought up in Florence. 
It shall become to serve all hopes conceived to deck his fortune with his virtuous deeds and their fortron. For the time I study virtue and that part of philosophy, will I apply that treats of happiness by virtue specially to be achieved. Well, well, tell me thy mind, for I have Pisa left, and am to Padua come, as he that leaves a shallow plash to plunge him in the deep, and with satiety seeks to quench his thirst. So I like it. Yeah, it seems decent. <laughs> it's not very nice, this guy was... Oh, uh... I, sorry, I, decent is very high praise from me. Fair enough. I don't want to go out and say astounding in case something better comes along, and then I won't have a word for it. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have a link to his YouTube account also where he has more recordings. And we will have links to the stuff that we've talked about on the blog where you can give us comments also at bardcast.blogspot.com. We've had a lot of really nice things that people say about us. Unfortunately, I basically can't take a compliment. So whenever anyone says something nice, I go, they must be being nice. Yeah. Even though these people have no reason to be nice to me other than their kindness. Fortunately, I know that we're amazing. <laughs> I'm just going to formally say right here, thank you to everyone who's said all these uh, nice things and given us this neat information. Not so much for the ones who said the mean things, though. Well, that's the nice thing about this podcast. It seems to only attract nice people. Remember that guy who said we were so stupid for recording Richard III? Okay, that was really funny. That was really funny. He just assumed that Richard II didn't exist. And that we had mistaken the title for the play. That was really good. He obviously hadn't listened to the play, so the people that listen to this are obviously great and attractive people. Yep. So if you want to help us out, you can go to the blog at bardcast.blogspot.com and give us some more comments. Tell us what you think about it. Our next play will be The Taming of the Shrew. There's a local performance that we're going to go to in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Like I've said before, it is a story of spousal abuse, so I am curious about how they're going to play it in modern times. Well, and it's an all-male cast on this one. That'll also be interesting. Spousal abuse is a lot less popular now than it was in Shakespeare's time, so I do wonder how they're going to play that off. Well, you know, a lot of times they'll play it with, like, he comes off as the bad guy instead of humorously. Right. Um, I remember someone once saying that it was a secretly feminist document that somehow actually had, like, the final speech was this work of sarcasm. Sarcasm, like she was actually joking about the idea. Of yeah, the woman I think Shakespeare is smart man. enough to do something like that, but I don't think he would. I think that he has done a lot of sarcastic and stuff that does the opposite of the supposedly yeah. intended effect, but this does not seem to be one of them. And this is a conversation for the next play, anyways. Naturally, naturally. Also, if you give us a rating on iTunes, that helps people find the podcast. A good something. rating, that is. I mean, a bad rating, not so much. Apparently, any rating actually brings us up in the search results. Oh, okay. I don't know how it works, to be honest, but that's what I understand. All right. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Carson. And I'm Jeff. And we'll see you next time. And thanks to Tom Sinnott-Bell for the dialogue.